This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Emergency physician Harry Calvino knows the state's medical aid in dying law firsthand. Last summer, his wife Aincha chose to end her life. She was one of a growing number of terminally ill Coloradans to consider that path. Last year, 125 people got prescriptions that could help them die, a 74% increase over the year prior. The law that allows for this is still relatively new. And Dr. Calvino, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. Your wife, who was an ER nurse, was diagnosed with stage four cancer of the appendix. It had spread. Tell us about her decision to use the medical aid in dying option. Well, obviously, it was her choice. She knew uh, more about these things than the average Joe on the street. And um, she wanted to die with die with uh, peace, dignity, and grace. And she knew that this would be an avenue that she could pursue. We were, in fact, in the end down in uh, Arizona. And uh, she knew the end was near. So we came back to our home here in Colorado so she could exercise that option. It was important to her to die in Colorado? Well, it was important for her to die with peace, dignity, and grace. And in Arizona, they don't have the right to die law. They'll put you in hospice, hook you up to some IVs, starve you for two days, and you're out of touch with your family and feelings, and that's how you die. Did you struggle with her choice? No, absolutely not. What kind of conversations did you have in the months, the weeks, leading up to it? Well, really, um, not as many as you would think. You know, we went to the physician, first physician involved with uh, doing the paperwork and making sure she was of sane mind. And then you get a second opinion, you do some more paperwork and get an exam. And, you know, after I knew she was thinking about it, of course, and that she would make that decision. So obviously we talked about things uh, during the doctor's visits. But after that, the decision was made. It was just a question of when she would determine that now's the time, I'm still competent, I can take this medication on my own, which she did. And uh, she was able to live with some dignity the last couple of months, hooked up to an IV of pain medication and able to get out daily and do something, whether it was go to the park or see her friends. Uh, but down, you know, in the end, she said it's time and was able to exercise that option. Just to remind folks, the law took effect about two years ago. Uh, it requires that two doctors certify someone has a maximum of six months to live, is competent, as you hinted, to make an informed decision, and is able to self-administer the drugs. So there has to be a lot of thought about the timing of this, that you're still well enough to self-administer. I'd like to explore with you that that idea of dignity. How did your late wife make the decision about when she no longer felt it was a dignified life and that it was the right moment to take the drugs? Yeah, well, you know, uh, my wife and I, we worked in ER. I've worked in ER for 37 years, so we see a lot of people pass. And we know a little bit more about what the body's going to do in the end. Um, for her, you know, the gastrointestinal stomach tract and all that breaking down, getting obstructed, 
extremities, swelling, uh, headaches, trouble breathing, chest pain, you know, uh, a whole group of symptoms that you live with, try to control with some medication or whatever. Uh, and then, you know, the last couple of days, she wasn't able to really go outside the house, even to the back porch. And, um, you know, at that point, she just said, it's time. It's time. You know, I'm not, I can't enjoy anything. I can't, uh, I can't have a useful life. I know I'm not going to live. I'm going to die. So it's time. Yeah, it's the simple joy of just being able to go outside, going out to the back porch. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, To the extent that you're comfortable, doctor, will you describe the last moments with your wife? Yeah. um, We um, have a son, Tyler, who's down in Parker, south of Denver. So he was around for the last year, which was wonderful. And he was there at the house. Aincha and I and Tyler and our beloved dog, Dex, who uh, was with her every minute of the day for the last two years. We all gathered on the bed. We had our local physician um, involved who was able to come over, offer emotional support. And, uh, you know, she said, well, it's time. I love you. I think I've talked to everybody concerned, meaning her sons and me, about everything I need to, and I love you, and then, you know, took the appropriate medication, which takes about an hour or two. You take some medication beforehand that keeps you from vomiting, and then you take some pain medicines and medicine to slow your heart. So there's a, quote, cocktail, and there are about three protocols, as I know it, of which cocktails to take. So we chose one that was... uh, we thought the best and the cheapest. <laughs> it's, the cheapest. A, it's actually kind of an issue that, uh, you know, in Oregon, they started giving sequibarbital or something, and it was like 50 bucks, you know, and I'm just off the top of my head here. And then, of course, as people ordered this, price went up to, well, a thousand or two or three. Oh, my. So just like anything else. Uh, so, you know, it, uh, it was it was a good way to do it. It's so interesting how uh, with questions of life and death, there are also just the brass tacks. You talk about all the paperwork you had to do. You talk about the expense of it. And I I presume insurance doesn't cover these drugs. Um, Well, actually, um, I'm not sure if they ever did. I finally went to a pharmacy that was recommended in Denver, and it was probably $300 for the whole bit. And I don't think I filed... uh, any insurance, hmm. but I went to the local pharmacy, a big chain, and uh, Joe there, who's a pharmacist I know <laughs> very well, um, he says, geez, you know, we haven't done this here in Larimer County. I'm not sure, you know, I'd have to talk to corporate headquarters. So um, I never really got an answer to that, but obviously that's a little bit of an issue. You got to know where you're going to get the medication and and uh, and which ones uh, cost versus 400. Yeah, this is uncharted territory for many, it sounds like. It seems like the appropriate time to bring in Sam DeWitt of Compassion and Choices, which advocates for end-of-life options. Hi, Sam. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So at the start of the conversation, we noted that substantial increase, 74%, in the number of people who've asked for prescriptions to aid them in dying. 
I'll note that this state doesn't track how many people actually use the medication. Uh, Why do you think, though, that there has been a rise in requests? Is it just that this aid in dying law is getting better known? I think that's a big part of it. Um, When you look back at the ballot initiative, um, you know, 65% of Colorado voters voted for this. That's two out of every three voters. So people wanting this option has been on the table since the start, but but actually being able to access it when when it comes to be your time, um, they want this option on the table. So they're having conversations with their doctors earlier. They're having conversations with their families earlier. And I think that's led, you know, as, as, as we've gone through two years of, of studying what happens and how it works and, and whether people are able to access it, um, I think it has gotten better. I think those, uh, those conversations are happening more. So what do we know about the people who are requesting the medications Uh, Who are they and who aren't they? Hmm. Um, Part of me thinks that with the expense of it or the potential expense of it, uh, you might see that wealthier people are able to engage in this over folks who are struggling. Do you you find that to be the case? Well, I think there's I think there's a a thread you can draw from um, medically underserved communities in all things and medically underserved communities when it comes to medical aid and dying. Um, There's. You know, there's no difference in this when it comes to rural communities, when it comes to, um, you know, urban communities, communities of color. It's it's really hard for people to trust their doctor enough to talk to them about this. And so from state reports, it looks like the majority of people who've requested medical aid and dying prescriptions are white, educated city people. Yeah. And that just speaks to the gaps you're saying in healthcare in general. It does. Uh-huh. It does. And I think it's important to note, you know, the, the rural areas of our state are are wildly medically underserved. There are there are 11 counties in the state that don't have hospitals. 11. Uh, is it concerning to you that the state doesn't have a good grasp on how many people are actually following through with this? It doesn't, honestly. Um, t- for me, that is something that is between a, a patient, their family, and their doctor. Um, whether or not they take the medication isn't it's not my business. It's not your business. It's not the state's business. Is it the state's business insofar as there might be medication, lethal medication in homes unused? I don't think so. There's federal guidelines for disposing of medications, regardless mm-hmm. of, of what we're talking about. If it's, you know, secobarbital for medical aid and dying, or if it's Vicodin for pain, uh, there are protocols for returning the medication. And that doesn't mean it can't be lingering around a medicine cabinet if someone holds on to it, though. Sure. But it doesn't sound like you have great, great concerns I don't. there. I remember in coverage leading up to the vote on this, the Colorado End of Life Options Act, there was a feeling that for some it would be comforting merely to have the medication, not necessarily go through with ending one's own life. Do you think that's bearing out? I do. I do. I've talked to a few family members who have said um, their loved one got the medication um, and immediately started you know, putting on weight again and started being able to enjoy the day because they they didn't have that pain and misery kind of hanging over their heads. And they felt perhaps empowered. It's there is something to be said for actually having some control in this one thing that we all will go through, um, actually being able to exercise some control over how you go is a big deal to people. Dr. Calvino, do you have any concerns that these very powerful medications could be unused in people's homes? Let me ask you that same question. 
<laughs> Don't get me started. You probably heard that we kill more people than handguns, we being physicians who hand out Percocet, opiates, Oxycontin, and all the rest. So uh, obviously there's a lot of education going on with uh, the physician community, but there are so many more medications out there that are legally prescribed that are in greater quantity. The only difference with these medications uh, that we're using is there are different classes and they affect the heart um, in addition to be anti-nausea medicines. So, you know, there's probably more lethal drugs in a lot of drug cabinets <laughs> than there are with these cocktails that we give. What would you change about the process if you could, Dr. Calvino? Well, I like the idea that you have two physicians that determine uh, what's going on. I was reading an article last uh, weekend. I was up in Montana in northern Wyoming, and they wanted to uh, prosecute doctors for manslaughter for giving patients uh, these medications. Their constitution protects the physicians, but it was an interesting discussion about uh, about this. And the idea of having the second doctor certify it, you think absolutely adds a, adds, adds a safeguard. Uh -huh. Yeah, there was a, a radio show in Santa Fe. I had to pull off to the side of the road. And uh, I think their website is not dead yet. So uh, I, I got the gal who runs the group on the phone, and, and she says she really is totally against society doing this. And she feels like, well, if the family just doesn't want their son around who's disabled, they get a doctor sign off and they'll just kill him. I said, well, you know, I don't think there's any evidence for that. And I certainly like the fact that you have a measure of uh, safeguard with a second physician. You yeah. know, a uh, physician's not going to just write off uh, a patient. As an aside, just, think about yeah, just briefly. every day thousands of patients that we're dealing with in nursing homes and hospitals that we actually medicate to help die. We do that every day. Mm. That's what we do. You know, if grandpa's in pain and we say, well, you know, we can't do much else, let's just up the medication and uh, let him pass. That's done all the time. Dr. Harry Calvino of Fort Collins is an emergency physician whose wife chose to use medical aid in dying last summer. And Sam DeWitt is with Compassion and Choices, which advocates for end-of-life options. Denver is about to decide its future. We're two months from an election to choose the next mayor and city council. Growth and transportation loom large, and the consequences could be felt across the metro. David Sachs of Denverite is City Hall reporter. Hi, David. Hey, how are you doing? Doing well. Uh, your reporting has led you to believe that change is driving people this cycle. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I think it's change, period. Change to my neighborhood, change to my commute, change to, you know, how, how things look in neighborhoods um, and how things look around the city. 
You see high rises going up. You have people getting priced out. So there's displacement occurring, too, because of this investment in in a lot of places that have been sort of ignored by private and public sectors for years. This is fascinating. So it's not just change the candidates. It's I'm seeing all this change around me and I want to do something about it. Yeah, I think change is totally driving the amount of candidates running. There's 42 for city council and uh, six for mayor. Do you think this idea of change also applies to a desire for a change in leadership? Are you sensing that? Not necessarily. I mean, in the circles I run in, because I'm a reporter, sure, people are angry and they want to change. That doesn't mean that will translate to votes. And if they have a block that's big enough to unseat incumbents. I mentioned growth and transportation as big issues here. Let's talk about growth because you think that's where a lot of the tension lies. Sure. I think very few people will tell you that they're anti-growth that they're anti-development and that the city has to stop developing. There's one candidate who said, let's put a moratorium on new building permits in the city. But most will say, no, we need to grow. We need to develop as a city, but we need responsible development. That's a big term I hear a lot in my reporting. What do you think they mean? It depends on who you ask. I think some people mean that it's more um, driven by the community and residents and less driven by the city and developers. Um, But the issue with that is, Registered neighborhood organizations in the city have a lot of power, but they don't necessarily represent all the types of people in the neighborhood. Um, Sometimes they might be people who are retired and they have more time on their hands to be civically engaged. They might not have, you know, two jobs or or kids or things like that. So the question is, um, who will be driving that development if it is more community driven? That is, if the neighborhood organizations have a louder voice, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a diverse voice. Correct. Okay. Interesting. To transportation and how people get around this city, I understand there's some real disagreement there, too. How do you think that is shaping the election? The way I see it is the city was built for cars. And because it's been so easy for so long to drive around in the city, now we're feeling the effects of that now that we have so many people in the city who have brought cars. And a lot of people say that's because of the lack of other transportation options, um, that the transit is good regionally, but not necessarily intracity, that people would walk more places, but there isn't maybe the density or the sidewalk infrastructure to make that easy and and convenient and nice. I've certainly had the experience of being on a sidewalk to nowhere. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right, right. Where the sidewalk ends. Where the sidewalk ends. A nice Shel Silverstein reference there. What are the varying views on how to address that? So uh, increasing the frequency of transit is a big deal. And the issue there is that our transit's actually controlled by the regional transportation district. So the city does not control the buses and the trains. Yet the population density and the sort of amount of people that would benefit from better transit is concentrated in Denver more so than it's concentrated in suburbs. Um, I mean, I think of the incumbent mayor who's talked about the possibility of starting Denver's own transit agency. Mm-hmm. Is that an idea that that is being owned um, by some of the other candidates? Uh, some candidates are owning the idea of a transit authority and others are saying we need a transportation department. And there's two separate things there because RTD is a transit authority that actually, you know, gets taxpayer money. And, yeah. um, a transportation department would really just elevate transportation within the city's sort of sausage-making uh, factory. So oh, interesting. And both are being talked about. I thought about a dimension of this as I headed to work this morning. I was on university in Denver behind a bus that had to pull over and all the cars had to wait. Uh, there's talk about these, like, separate bus lanes through the city, isn't there? 
There is, and we already have them actually on Broadway and Lincoln. But there's a big deal project. It's it's probably the most consequential project in the city within the next several years, and that's the Colfax Avenue bus rapid transit. The idea is that it acts like a train with sort of very nice stations. It runs along the center of the street and um, repurposes the four car lanes for two bus lanes and two car lanes. And the idea is it moves way more people than single occupancy vehicles. And this is a point of contention among these candidates? Not so much contention because it's already in motion. Um, a lot of the planning has been done. They're trying to figure out the engineering now. The question is how the development will be shaped around it. You know, you want to put density, according to city planners, where there's really, really good transit. And um, this will be the best transit in the city if and when it's completed. So the question is, you know, do we have eight-story buildings on Colfax? Do we have five-story buildings on Colfax? What is the neighborhood going to look like and who will be affected in in what way, positively and negatively? You know, climate change plays into this question of how we get around the city because Denver has goals it wants to achieve in this respect. Yeah, they have serious goals that they want to achieve by 2030. And uh, the second biggest greenhouse gas emitter in the city is transportation. So it's that sector that's causing so much um, heartburn or or shortness of breath may be a more appropriate <laughs> thing to say there. And there's this idea that we can build our way out with bigger roads, but actually we know that that just sort of increases the amount of car use. So there's a dead end that you hit eventually. Um, we have a finite amount of space. If you fill that with cars, there'll be more traffic and more pollution. Now, if you fill it with things that move more people more efficiently and actually give them the space on the street that they need to move efficiently, the bus, then that can maybe make a dent in those climate change goals. But, uh, you know, try telling that to someone who drives everywhere all the time. It's not easy politically. David, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. David Sachs is City Hall reporter for Denverite. Voters will also decide whether the city should decriminalize so-called magic mushrooms and whether to overturn Denver's urban camping ban. We'll break down the Right to Survive initiative next week on Colorado Matters. And you can also find an election guide at denverite.com. Okay, let's start our feedback segment loud and clear with a little music, you know, to set the tone. This season, RuPaul's Drag Race on VH1 features a Denver drag queen, Evie Oddly. And when I interviewed Oddly Tuesday, I described Drag Race as a show in which men compete to see who can be the fiercest women. Listener Rex Hamaker of Denver takes issue with that portrayal. He notes people who don't identify as men have competed, including transgender women. Indeed, pop culture site The Cheat Sheet reports in its first 10 seasons, Drag Race has featured eight openly trans contestants. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Show me what you got. Former Governor John Hickenlooper made his case to be president at a CNN town hall last night in Atlanta. As he's done before, Hickenlooper pointed to successes when it comes to methane regulations, health care and jobs, saying these could be a blueprint for the nation. I can do what we did in Colorado. We started when I started, we were 40th in job creation. We became the, for the last two years, according to U.S. News and World Report, the number one economy in the country. And we did it by embracing everybody. Everyone was part of designing that. We can do this on a national level and really lift up the entire country. 
Hickenlooper said he'd suspend the federal death penalty if elected president. While governor of Colorado, Hickenlooper made it clear he opposes capital punishment and effectively put a moratorium on executions here. On Wednesday night, Hickenlooper also criticized President Trump, saying he should be, quote, ashamed of his response to questions about a rise in white nationalism and to the recent deadly shooting in New Zealand. Later, a geologist in the audience asked Hickenlooper a question about climate change. Thank you for for promoting science. And Lord knows it would be nice to have somebody in the White House who actually understands science. Hickenlooper was a geologist himself. There was one possibly cringeworthy moment. It came when Hickenlooper was asked if he'd choose a woman as a running mate. Uh, Of course. But I think that we should be, well, I'll I'll ask you another question. How come we aren't asking the question? I know. (laughs) I know. But how come we're not asking, not asking more often the women, would you be willing to put a man on the ticket? When we get to that point, I'll ask you that question. The moderator there. At one point, Hickenlooper discussed his face blindness, which sometimes makes it hard for him to recognize people. He also told a story from his memoir, The Opposite of Woe, My Life in Beer and Politics. And you have a lot of interesting stories in that book. One of them is about the time you went to see an X-rated movie (laughs) with your mother. I didn't know what an X-movie was. We thought it was a little naughty, but we didn't think it was that bad. I, I, again, you got to understand, I was 18 years old. And I said, oh, I promised, you know, I promised Jed that we would go to the, the movie theater and see this, this new movie. Uh, you want to come? So I took my mother to see Deep Throat. Uh, Hickenlooper will return to the campaign, campaign trail, that is, this weekend with a trip to New Hampshire. Artificial intelligence is helping sort your recyclables, as we learned yesterday. Soon, AI may take your fast food order. CPR's Exandra McMahon reports as part of our Disruptor series. Welcome to Good Times. Order when you're ready. Visit a Good Times and your drive through order might be taken by Holly, a conversational AI similar to Alexa or Siri, but she specializes in fast food. Can I have a uh, bacon burrito, please? And I'll have one small coffee. Holly is made by Rob Carpenter, who founded Valiant AI. The Denver company wants to bring conversational AI, like Holly, into the workplace. Carpenter is testing her on real customers at a location in South Denver. The biggest challenges to these types of models is nobody orders food the same way. They don't think about it the same way. So Right there, day one, the different ways people order is extremely complicated. Then from there, you have challenges with things like accents or different languages. And the way that people will say the same item, like a cheeseburger, can vary based on kind of where your origin is or how you were raised. Even things like different colloquialisms within the United States. Think of soda or pop or Coke, right? Like in one region, Coke could be referring to, I want a soft drink. In another region, Coke refers to a very specific product. So you have to understand those nuances for each area that you're in. I have one bacon burrito and one coffee and your total is $4.20. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) 
say someone had like a pretty complicated order with like a lot of follow-up questions, would she be able to handle that? Yep, it's designed to handle the entire flow of normal human communication that happens. How so, are you? Good, good morning. <laughs> good morning, for 20, please. Okay, Thank there you, you go. Thank you. So you still get the human interaction between the employees and the customers, but it's just at the window in a far more personal environment. And for these employees, they have a huge amount of work Thank to do. You. Thank you. As you can see, they're taking food orders from one or two lanes. They're trying to process credit cards, give back cash, change, scan loyalty cards. All the while, they're trying to put food in a bag, get the coffee together, and things like that. And so what we're really trying to do is just automate one of the more kind of routine and monotonous tasks. Okay. Think about working in a fast food environment for eight hours, and you have to say, welcome to so-and-so restaurant, can I take your order? And you have to say that 600 times. That would get pretty taxing for anybody. Something that immediately comes to mind for a lot of people when they hear AI working in fast food restaurants are like, oh, what about those fast food workers? Like, are they going to be out jobs? So the jobs question is going to be one that's going to be a critical part of this whole AI revolution over the next 30 years. For us, at least within the fast food environment and the drive-through, as we talked about, they're also processing payment. They're talking to the customers at the window. They're putting food together. So at this stage, we're really only talking about automating one task. Now, if you looked over an entire organization, will that reduce some of the work and some of the need for labor? Uh, it would be disingenuous to say no. So that will be an element of it. However, there's the whole retail apocalypse that everybody is talking about and everyone is concerned about right now. So if you can make these businesses more profitable, they'll also be able to open up more locations. The other thing right now in the United States, because it's such a tight labor market, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 800,000 unfilled positions within the fast food industry. So they're just struggling to get people in general. All right. Interacting with AI at good times means talking into a speaker. In other cases, artificial intelligence comes in robot form. Our next guest started making robots when he was 12. Ian Bernstein started his first boulder-based robotics company, Sphero, in 2010. His new company is Misty Robotics, which says it's building the robot for everyone. Hi, Ian. Hey, how's it going? Doing well. Tell us about your foray into robotics at age 12. How did it happen? Um, you know, I was, I was homeschooled at the time, grew up in northern New Mexico, and my dad was a musician, and he was kind of a facilitator toward me. And he uh, met this guy who taught electronics at a tech school and thought I might be interested in that. I've always been a tinkerer, took things apart. Um, so he ended up trading guitar lessons for electronics lessons for me. A few months into that, got into robotics, uh, went to a competition, um, and I was just hooked after that. It's like all I did is sit in my room and take take apart broken things and build more robots. When you would go to competitions, what were the robots competing on? Like, was it speed or, you know, what were the skills that you developed in that venue? Yeah. So a lot of there's, um, it was sort of a biologically inspired robotics called beam robotics. So it's a lot of like uh, little robot insects that would have to uh, solar powered that could uh, traverse around like in a little arena with different obstacles and stuff so they wouldn't get stuck. Um, there was uh, solar car races. Uh, later on, I did um, robot sumo. So you have like a robot sumo. Ring. Yeah. They would fight then. <clears throat> um, yeah. I mean, sort of. They just try to push each other out of a ring. Yep. Okay. 
<laughs> but a lot of it had to do with mobility, their ability to move. Yep. Yeah. Your first robotics company, Sphero, mostly made robots for entertainment. How is the robotics scene in Colorado? Help us understand where this state sits in this realm. Yeah, I mean, even worldwide, I mean, there's more and more robotics companies popping up. But I would say um, there's actually quite a few in Colorado. Um, in, just in uh, just in Boulder, we have, of course, Sphero and Misty Robotics. There's Modular Robotics, Left Hand Robotics. It's just snowblowing. There's Canvas Technology who does delivery and sort of front of store. Um, snowblowing Robotics. Yeah. So it's actually, um, it's quite fascinating. So when a snowstorm happens, they have to find large numbers of temporary labor um, for especially big uh, corporate campuses or school campuses. And it's very challenging to find enough people to go out for this, you know, sort of one-time event that you don't know when it's going to happen. So they have robots to sort of go out and do that. Oh, wow. Okay. Need one of those for my home, my sidewalk, please. (laughs) Through Sphero, you wound up working on the toy version of BB-8, the Star Wars robot. How did that happen? Um, it was it was a lot of things coming together. So we had built Sphero, which is this robot ball about the size of a tennis ball. It connects to your smartphone. Uh, back in 2010, in 2014, we we're out at Disney. We had started to add personality to the robots, and we saw customers really engage with them when it wasn't the robot ball controlled from your smartphone, but it was actually a character, Sphero, who had a story. Um, So we thought the best people in the world to learn how to do that better from would be Disney. And we got to meet um, Bob Iger, the the CEO. And uh, he showed us, pulled out his phone and showed us a picture of BB-8 a year and a half before episode seven of Star Wars came out and told us this was going to be the new droid and asked us if we could make one because they didn't know if you could make a real BB-8. So we prototyped one that night and it and uh, sent him a video and kind of took us a year to get it to production and ended up selling a couple million of those. Wait, you prototyped it that night? Yeah. So okay, we... that's impressive. That's all those <laughs> robot competitions paying off. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on to this newer company, Misty Robotics. Its vision is to put a personal robot in every home and office. Why? Why should that be a goal? Um, I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of use cases for robots, um, and we're just at the point with the technology and sort of consumer readiness that we can start to do a few of the simpler things. Um, you know, eventually these robots will be like Rosie from the Jetsons, and they can cook and clean and stuff. But but why? So um, so for instance, our CEO he has a personal mission um, to eliminate um, uh, uh, nursing homes. Like he doesn't want to see his his mom go into a nursing home when she gets old, where robots could take care of her at home. And I think the quality of life of you know older people could could become much better uh, with robots in the future. So the idea of aging in place, being able to stay in your home if you had robotic assistance, uh, that might be splendid for the patient who wants to remain in their home, but it has all kinds of repercussions for the labor market, doesn't it? Uh, It could. I mean, a lot of it, you know, one example I think about, starting to think about a lot more is is like, say, education, um, where robots can 
uh, assist teachers. So it's not like a robot is replacing a teacher, but picture picture a school. There's uh, right now it's pretty bad student to teacher ratio. What if you had that same teacher, but then you had ten or fifteen robots in the classroom that could develop based on the AIs of the brains of the robot a custom education for each student? So each student gets individualized attention and help, but the whole classroom is sort of still guided by that one teacher. There's a lot of use cases like that where we can really increase, um, you know, increase the quality of education in the, uh, for people um, with robots as the assistants. In that particular case with classrooms, why shouldn't those just be more people, though? Oh, I mean, I mean that, it's cool to have robots in the classroom, but I just want to question the underlying assumption. Well, I mean, that would be great. I, I, I would, I would say that's great as well. But we, we don't have that, right? There's for for many different reasons, right? That's a whole other conversation. What do you think is going to be the first home robot use that you produce out of this? Yeah. So, I mean, our... I think of Roomba, by the way. Yeah. Roomba is like the only robot I feel I engage with on a daily basis, the vacuum. Oh, and it's great. Thing. I mean, I have, I have it as well, right? It <laughs> vacuums my floor twice a week. Um, the thing is, there's uh, robots, because they're mechanical, they have motors and plastics and metals. Um things that are finite resources on earth. So it's not like computers where you sort of get infinite processing power, uh, you know, at a cheaper and cheaper price. Like the, the price of physical, the physical part of a robot's not going to go down. So, huh. so we need robots that are going to do many different things. You have to make it worth all of that engineering, all of that expense. And what are the first few tasks you would hope to deploy? Right. So simpler things. So I think um, there's a lot of stuff around around elder care. So uh, just just a, a small example of one little thing that you don't really think about is like um, big, but just carrying a glass of water. Okay. So I, I tore my ACL in December, um, had surgery a month ago, and for the first couple of weeks, like I was on crutches, and just to get a glass of water, I had to go to the kitchen, go to the cupboard. Open the like, put down the crutch. Get out, you know. Open the cupboard. Grab the glass. Put it on the counter. Grab my crutch. Go into the middle of the island between the counter and the island where the sink is. You know, put the crutch down. Grab the glass. Put it on the island. Grab my crutch again. Crutch <laughs> over. You know, and that's you know, I'm not. I haven't even filled it up yet. Then I have to get the full glass of water to the couch or the bedroom. Just a robot that could do that for me. Of course, that was just two weeks, right? There's a lot of people out there with disabilities. Like, that's that's a huge thing, just to carry a glass of water and follow you. So There's a lot of little applications like that. A lot of little applications. The point is, a lot of them, you have to make it worth it. You have to bundle these kinds of tasks. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we have been focusing in the past few days on artificial intelligence. So what drives these robots and what helps them learn so they get better how How is the state of AI today helping you achieve the kinds of goals that you've laid out there? Yeah, so you can kind of picture the robot as sort of the physical embodiment, the thing that lets you uh, you know reach out and manipulate the world or interact with the world. And the AI, the artificial intelligence, is part of the brain of the robot. So we're using AI, machine learning, techniques around that to say, uh, identify things in the world, like object recognition, face recognition, um, things you, th- you hear the word deep learning. Right. So recognize the glass, the water, and the face you're bringing it to. Exactly. All of that is inherent in what you described. Right. And those are all pieces of artificial intelligence. And then, of course, we think further out, like sort of the, the robot um, 
uh, with different types of personalities and the different types of personalities that sort of adapt to you. So I, I sort of a, an example of, um, you know, if we, if we started hanging out every day, um, you kind of start to say some of the same things. You have similar experiences, and it kind of changes who you are a little wow. bit. So we think of like, you know, if you have three people, uh, or, or you know, myself, you, you, we chat our own robots that a mutual friend could come over and actually tell after a certain amount of time interacting with these robots, which robot is my robot, and which robot is your robot uh-huh. based on how they behave. It's so interesting because we met Holly, artificial intelligence at Good Times, just a few minutes ago. Yesterday, we met Clark, robot sorting recyclables. It sounds like you give a lot of thought to the anthropomorphizing of these things. Yeah, yeah. And not not so much like I have no interest in building um, robots that are humanoid, but there are certain aspects that you need, like in order to have that connection with the robot, you need uh, you need the robot to be able to convey its emotions to you. So things like eyes and neck, um, there are, we we put uh, we put a lot of extra energy to give our robot's head the ability to tilt, huh. like curiosity. There's so much that can be conveyed in that. Ian, thanks for being with us. I feel like we could keep talking, but uh, we can't. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, check out Misty. Thanks. Uh, Ian Bernstein founded Misty Robotics based in Boulder, and we spoke as part of Disruptors, our coverage of entrepreneurs and startups in the state. And you can hear our conversation from yesterday about some pretty trashy robots at CPR.org, along with a futurist who talks about what work and education might look like as AI gets better and better. You might not think of someone who makes prank calls as an artist, in fact, just the opposite. But a Colorado man has developed a following for his recordings of elaborate calls. One famous fan calls the elusive artist the Salvador Dali of prank calling. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf explains how a documentary out this week could grow this artist's profile. Hi, I am Longmont Potion Castle. Yeah, this guy calls himself Longmont Potion Castle. CPR agreed not to use his real name. His anonymity is key to his work, and somehow he's managed to maintain it this whole time. So let's call him LPC for short. The premises behind his calls get pretty absurd, like the time he called a candy store and told him he was with a utility company. This is Detroit Energy. We're testing our heating today, so we're going to be turning your temperature up to about 110 degrees. Holy crap. Uh, That could be a really big issue. (laughs) Um, we're a candy store and you will melt all of our candy. LPC hadn't talked much to the media. Then in 2016, he did an interview with Rolling Stone, which called him America's underground prank call king. Since he seemed open to interviews, I reached out. And we met early last year, outside a restaurant north of Denver. I had a phone in my room as a kid. It kept getting taken away. Why? Just because I was using it for unintended reasons and I was always getting in trouble as a kid, prank calling people. But this wasn't just some teenage phase. LPC kept at it because he quickly saw the creative potential in prank calls. I had ideas. I just didn't necessarily have anyone to express them to. He started recording the calls, and in 1988, he put out his first album. He's since released a couple dozen more. These aren't your typical gags, like as your refrigerator running. His pranks get pretty complex, weaving strange scenarios, witty responses, and audio effects. And he often manages to keep people on the line longer than you'd expect. 
Early on, LPC pulled numbers for random people from the phone book. I'd look for uh, anything that I that seemed funny. As his popularity grew, fans started sending him phone numbers to call. That's how he got the number for Alex Trebek. Yeah, LPC has pranked the Jeopardy host quite a few times. In one call, LPC tells Trebek that a big shipment of sod is on its way to his home. You're not going to do it on 4,200 pounds of stuff there? 4,200 pounds of stuff? Are you out of your mind? That is roughly the weight of this stuff here. Well, we didn't order it. We got four trucks en route to you. The call lasts seven minutes. LPC has pranked other celebrities, like actor Keith Sutherland and singer Eddie Money. It's not surprising that getting pranked makes some people angry. Look, I call a man about a leaf blower, and you're jerking me around, fella. I don't give a about your leaf blower. I'm an electronics technician. That's what I do. That's the owner of a Denver electronics store. He says what LPC does is, plain and simple, harassment. Here he is in a clip from the new documentary about LPC. He thinks he's funny. He has a cadre of sycophants who think he's funny. And I'm telling you, when this guy finally gets outed, somebody's going to beat that dude's You can count Rain Wilson among those who think he's funny. Hi there. This is Rain Wilson, and I'm an actor, among other things. Wilson, who played Dwight Schrute on the U.S. version of The Office, has followed LPC's work for nearly two decades. He thinks LPC is one of the most unique comedic voices in America. There's something about his sense of humor and his comic mayhem that reminds me of the Marx Brothers. There's a surreal aspect, as if Salvador Dali were doing crank calls. He cites the clown motel call as a favorite. I'm going to be eating raw meat in the rooms, pumping iron for 24 hours at a time. Yeah, I'm not interested. You need to find a motel. I'm going to be down there in about five minutes. I got a Humvee here. I got two Humvees. I'm going to tell Joe not to rent to you. You sound like you're, you're not too sane. LBC doesn't rile everyone he pranks, like Paul Epstein, who owns Denver record store Twist and Shout. He actually knew LPC in the early 90s. We were friendly and casually chatty in that record store clerk customer way. I found him to be sincere, intelligent, artistic, funny, and um, vulnerable. They fell out of touch for a while. Then something strange happened. I remember hearing about it from employees saying, we keep getting these weird calls at night. I was looking for that, that R&B single. The R&B single, it's like, trick, triple check, check, double check, triple check, check, triple double check, trip, triple double. You don't know what it's called? Triple double check, check. That prank showed up on one of LBC's albums. Epstein felt bad for his employee, who was just trying to do her job. Okay, hold on. He thought the prank was juvenile, but also funny. And he decided to sell the album at his store. I was like, if you're going to make fun of my store, I'm going to make money off of you. Changing phone technology has presented challenges. Things like caller ID have made it more difficult to get people to answer. For every call that's successful, LPC says 10 failed. And he has different techniques to keep people on the line. The UPS scenario really snares people in there. I just picture them thinking, now, did I order something? I don't think so, but I better keep talking and find out. And if they don't stay on the phone, I just keep calling them back and put them together. LPC is also a musician. That plays into how he approaches his pranks, from his recording studio setup to the way he experiments with sound. But he admits his music never took off like the prank calls did. 
I'm honestly a little surprised that people like it even now. And I'm not trying to act like meek or anything. I just, I, I really am surprised when people care about it. The forthcoming film about the underground prank caller is called Where in the Hell is the Lavender House? The title is a nod to one of his calls. He's pretending to be a neighbor who tells a woman her dogs are too loud. Where do you live? In the Lavender House. Where in the hell is the Lavender House? Filmmaker David Hall calls the film a documentary, but he blurs the line between reality and fiction in it, much like what you hear in LPC's work. Hall also maintains LPC's anonymity. In some scenes, you see LPC at his setup, but they film in ways that you never see his face. Hall hopes the film will expose more people to LPC's work. To me, there's always two main factions to art, the technical, formal aspect, and then there's the inspirational side. And he puts as much work into creating an album as any band I've ever met. And so on that regard, it is art. It's not just a joke. With the documentary out, and even a TV show in the works that recreates some of the prank calls, LPC knows all of this will raise his profile and make it harder to stay anonymous. He says he's cool with that. I'm ready. Maybe not that ready, though. We had planned to meet for a follow-up interview, but he stopped responding to my messages. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. Our Disruptors theme was written by Megan Burt. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner, and the show is at Colorado Matters. This is CPR News. Thank you.